So we're reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what they do not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, uh, pondering our passage for this morning from 2 Corinthians as we go through this this short series, um, I wonder, do you think life is fair? In fact, I'll put it a bit more strongly. Do you think life should be fair? I can remember um, that when I was a child, I once complained to my dad, shouting in anger, I guess, it's not fair. And he replied, well, Simon, no one ever said life was going to be fair. And of course, he was right. No one had ever made me that promise. I just had some innate expectation that it would be. And like all of us, I had to learn the painful lesson that if we expect fairness in life, we're in for a disappointment. Sometimes bad and lazy people prosper, while good and industrious people don't. That's life. But I ask again, should it be this way? That's the million dollar question. In our passage for this morning, Paul makes a link between the kind of the universal human ideal of fairness and the theological concept of grace. And he does so as part of an intensely practical discussion about money. One of the great things about Paul's letters is that they're always grounded in the real world. Sometimes theologians can be accused of 
you know, going off on flights of fancy, arguing about the number of angels that can dance on the head of a pin or some other such abstract and obtuse subject. Well, not with Paul. His theology is always grounded in reality and it's being worked out kind of on the hoof, so to speak, to address the problems and the difficulties uh, that were being faced by those in the churches that he was pastorally responsible for. And the background to the chapter we're looking at today lay in a famine that had affected the nation of Israel in the mid to late 40s. Uh, so we're talking, you know, some 10 to 15 years after the crucifixion. And the situation facing Christian believers in Jerusalem had already been financially precarious before the famine. Um, they had broken with Judaism, which made them particularly vulnerable to a double whammy of Jewish and Roman taxation on top of an already precarious economy. And then the crops failed. So the famine was particularly catastrophic for them. Uh, by the time we get to uh, the letter of two Corinthians, Paul and Barnabas, his friend, had already made an initial famine relief visit to Jerusalem in the year 46 to deliver a gift of money from the church in Antioch. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 11. Uh, but this famine was uh, lasted for several years and Paul spent much of the next decade really trying to persuade people in the churches that he'd planted in Asia Minor, kind of the area we now think of as Turkey, to send financial support on an ongoing basis back to the kind of the mother church in Jerusalem to support them in their financial need. And this is what we meet in 2 Corinthians, which was written in probably 55. So, you know, we're 10 years into the famine by this point. And here we have Paul once again trying to persuade the Corinthians to be generous with their money. And of course Corinth was a wealthy city, it had two ports, a lot of trade went through there, so there was money in Corinth to be, to, that could be reallocated. And it's this, in this context that Paul intertwines these concepts of grace and fairness. Now the word grace uh, in Greek, the word charis uh, appears five times in the first few verses of chapter eight. Depending on your Bible translation, it will be variously translated as grace or blessing or generosity or thanksgiving or indeed favour. But in Greek, it's, it's always the same word. So this word charis is clearly a word with what translators would call a wide semantic range. There's a, a, a range of words that can do justice to it in English, but probably no one of those words in English does it full justice. So what does Paul mean when he speaks of in verse one of the grace of God, or in verse four of the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints? That, that's uh, the financial support for the church in Jerusalem or in verses six and seven, this act of grace, or indeed verse nine, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, on the one hand, he's portraying grace as something as spiritual that originates with God and is made known to us through Jesus. This is the kind of grace that I guess some of us would have in mind when we perhaps you know, close a, a church meeting or something with the words of the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. But 
On the other hand, he's using exactly the same word to describe something profoundly practical that human beings can and should be participating in. And in this case, it's contributing generously to an appeal for money for people who are facing starvation. That is as much grace as the grace of God that comes to us in Jesus. And for Paul, these two aspects of grace, the divine and the human, the spiritual and the practical, are inextricably interlinked. You can't have one without the other. And yet, for many Christians, grace has lost its practical side and has become instead a solely or at least primarily theological concept. When Liz and I were children at our respective Sunday schools, we were both independently taught uh, what I now know to be a backronym definition of grace. You may have heard it too. You take the letters of grace, G-R-A-C-E, and then you come up with a phrase that sums up what grace is. Uh, if you know this, you can say it along with me. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. Nice. Or to spell it out more fully, this definition of grace has grace as the mechanism whereby the sacrifice of Christ on the cross opens the path for sinful humans such as me and you to receive the riches of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. And widespread though this kind of theology is, I have something of a problem with it. Because grace is not a mechanism. And neither is grace a transactional process where Christ pays the price for our sins so we don't have to. A transactional and mechanistic understanding of grace, you see, is built on a transactional and mechanistic understanding of the cross. And this is problematic because it makes grace something that God alone does rather than something for humans to participate in. It makes us the recipients of grace rather than as sharers in it. And it makes the cross the focus of God's legalistic anger rather than an expression of God's gracious love. I've come across various Baptist churches over the years which have the word grace in their title. It has occasionally occurred to me that the version of grace that they have in mind there is this one, the legalistic and mechanistic understanding of grace. In Paul's theology, the notion of grace is consistently opposed to any language of law and legalism. Paul argues consistently that the gospel of grace that has been revealed, made known in Christ, has fulfilled the law that was revealed and made known in Moses. And yet, for many of us, our understanding of fairness, our understanding of grace, is still built on a mechanistic or legalistic framework. We kind of feel hardwired sometimes to believe that if, if this happens, then that should follow. Or that if we do this, then we deserve that, and so on. 
And when we don't get the outcome that we believe we deserve, we end up echoing our childhood cries of, it's not fair, daddy, or descending perhaps into cynicism and resignation. Much of the language of rights is built on a mechanistic understanding of fairness, with certain inalienable rights being inherent to humanity, and any violation of these a crime against humanity. However, the history of human rights has shown that such so-called inalienable rights are always in the end culturally determined and open for debate. I'm reminded of something Dawn said in a sermon at Bloomsbury a few years ago, where she asserted that instead of speaking of our rights and asserting our rights, we should start talking about our responsibilities. I guess it all begins with the Ten Commandments, at least as far as the Judeo-Christian tradition is concerned, that has dominated the Western world for the last two millennia. And we might think that these are pretty straightforward until it comes to actually applying them. After all, thou shalt not kill seems pretty definite until you have to start discussing just war theory. Honour thy father and mother is fine until you have an abusive or inadequate parent. Of course, the Jews of the first century and before knew this perfectly well. And so the Jewish tradition of Midrash emerged to help people interpret the Ten Commandments for their own context and situation. So when Paul, as a trained Jewish Pharisee, well schooled in the art of Midrash, pits law against grace, he knows that he is taking the axe to the root of everything that seems fair and right for many of his readers. From a human perspective, fairness is the fair application of the law. It's the just outworking of a person's rights. It's the protection of the individual by the community. But Paul is offering a different perspective, one built on the life and example of Jesus, rather than one built on the law of Moses. And Paul calls this Christ-focused, this Jesus-centred perspective, grace originating through God's revelation in Jesus and finding its outworking in the lives of those whom it touches. An example of this from the teachings of Jesus is found in what are known as Jesus' antithesis teachings. You know the ones where Jesus says, you have heard it was said this, but I say to you that. So uh, in Matthew chapter five, we find several of these, including probably the most famous one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. And here Jesus was specifically quoting from the books of the law, specifically Leviticus chapter 24 verses 19 to 20, which reads, anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. Well, from a legal perspective, if you want to extract revenge, you therefore have the right to inflict back the injury sustained, but no more. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is an injunction against overkill, preventing a vendetta in exchange for a slight. But Jesus makes it clear that whilst this may be your legal right, it is not the gracious response 
Grace forgives and endures and meets hatred with love. Grace undermines law and does so outrageously. I've been watching the American House of Cards recently on Netflix, and no spoilers please, because I am only about halfway through. But in it, the American president makes a speech in which he is arguing for a back to work program for America. And he says the following, we have been crippled by social security, Medicare, Medicaid, by welfare, by entitlements. And that is the root of the problem, entitlements. Let me be clear, you are entitled to nothing. You are entitled to nothing. And strangely, I think Paul might agree with this conclusion, but for completely the opposite reason. Any language of entitlement or fairness that is predicated on a legalistic framework is only ever going to be at best a partial answer because life isn't fair. We have no inalienable rights, however much we might want to assert them. We are entitled to nothing. But this for Paul is merely the bad news that paves the way for the good news of the gospel of Christ. Because where law fails, grace can triumph. So to return to the question of the collection for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. A legalistic approach to financial redistribution in favour of the poor would look like a series of transactions whereby people give because they must or in such a way as to retain control over how the money shall be used. We're well used to systems like this. We pay our taxes and the welfare state provides housing for those in poverty. We make donations to charities or food banks and they offer food or other support on our behalf to those in need. Or at an international level, uh, our government offers uh, financial aid overseas, always, of course, with strings attached. This is not the basis of Paul's appeal for money. He is casting the Christian appeal for money, the Christ-inspired appeal for money, as a system of grace, where people give their money freely and with generosity. As we have freely received the riches of God's grace, so we should gracefully share those blessings with others, is Paul's logic. The grace we receive from God, it seems, only has its fullest meaning when we pass it on. And this is because grace is never individual. It is always communal. It's never transactional. It's always relational. And so what about us? What are we to take from this in terms of our own lives, our own discipleship? Well, let's start with money. It's where Paul starts. Not all, but many of those listening to this sermon today are people with, at least in global terms, a significant level of wealth. I include myself amongst that. First, I want to say that this is nothing to be ashamed of. For too long, Christians have focused on guilt-inducing theologies of wealth, which have simply paralysed us into inaction. So hear this, if you, like me, have some financial stability and a roof over your head, then thank God for it and be grateful. But secondly, 
we also need to hear that what we have is not ours to do with as we will. And no legalistic or mechanistic system of giving can get us off this hook. We are called to generosity, to faithfulness in giving, and to joining with Christ in the calling to grace-filled living. And part of this, I believe, is to explore ways of giving that allow us to surrender control over that which we've given. This takes us back to Paul's prioritising of the community and away from the temptations to individualism. So, for example, when we give to the work of God through our local church, we are consciously surrendering the decisions of how that money will be spent to those with whom we are in fellowship in Christ. It's about trust and love and forgiveness and grace. And such as these will free us from our addiction to legalism and our enslavement to individualism. Grace calls us to reciprocity, to realising that however much we may have, we always have needs that others can meet, just as others have needs that we can meet in turn. Grace calls us to action in the cause of those whose lives are intertwined with ours. Grace calls us to play our part in bringing the kingdom of God to reality in our world and in our time. Next week, we're going to be moving on from 2 Corinthians and having a short series looking at issues of justice that affect our lives, issues of economic justice, welcoming the stranger, climate justice and homelessness. And Paul's theology of fairness and grace that we've been exploring today is the foundation for our practical engagement in the world as we become those through whom the grace of God is made known to those who are currently living with inequality, injustice and exclusion. And what we will discover is that as we are agents of God's grace to others, we in turn become recipients of God's grace to us from them. This is the fairness of God's grace and it is the gospel of Christ that has saved us. Amen. So if I can ask uh, our panellists to turn on their uh, videos and to unmute themselves, uh, we're delighted to have Susan and Liz and Rosanne and Nigel uh, as our panellists this morning. And just as a, a, an opening gambit, uh, in terms of what Simon shared with sermon this morning about grace and uh, justice and legalism and Jesus interpreting scripture. There was so much in there. Uh, any immediate thoughts or, or feelings that are stirred up for people? Um, I was thinking about um, like with the human rights sort of as contract theory and legalism um, and you know, and an escape from that. And how do we escape from that? Because like, our most of our secular world is grounded in that. And, um, but then instead of that, thinking about like 
yes, Grace, but also I was thinking also about that we are all made in the image of God. And then what does that mean? And can we think about that in terms of like, I don't know if I'm, I don't know how to explain this. Um, but like, we all have a capacity for God's love inside us. Um, in that sense, being made in the image of God. And then we can use that love and we can share that love rather than necessarily what we owe to each other just by being in a society. What we can do by like through God's love. I don't know if I'm explaining this very well. but I, I think Susan... One of the things that Simon said that resonates with what you're saying and what struck me was the idea of being able to, in the language of grace, meet each other's needs. And uh, depending on our own life experiences and circumstances, we will have had circumstances that may have been difficult or challenging or painful. And, uh, and if we've experienced God's grace to us uh, in those circumstances, it can gift us with incredible compassion for others uh, experiencing similar, and we may have uh, something to bring to a situation in another person's life. So the idea of meeting each other's needs out of a grace dynamic rather than a legalistic dynamic, I find that was very, very interesting. Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things where you, you have to you try and work on a mindfulness perspective and and you you count your your blessings and what grace you've been given and you try and use that to pay it forward so whether you're using your privilege um to stand up for for people that don't have the same rights and the same opportunities and the same financial um facilities that that uh, are offered to some of us um or whether you're using love because you've you've come from a background where you know what it feels to be loved and you can pay that forward and you can give that to someone else that's suffering in in a way that that you can you can help them with um and and you can use lots of different things that you've been blessed with to pay them forward to try and work towards god's kingdom i suppose um, I was interested um, that Roseanne, uh, you, you used the term pay forward because I actually wrote that down and put a big, big square around it. I don't know if anyone remembers there was a film and um, pay it forward, which I always really liked and kind of gave that perspective of uh, if someone's done something good to you, then you can do something good to somebody else. And that kind of means that community um, is all um, improved basically so in some ways some of it can be a bit of a selfish thing but also it's just it has this amazing effect on the whole of community um rather than just an individual um so yeah so i really i, I really resonate with the pay it forward idea but i think um when i was thinking about what grace actually means i think for a lot of us grace does feel like something that's been kind of um, hit, hit us around the head. It, it, grace can feel like something that um, we 
we feel guilty about because God has given us so much and therefore we have to do something and um, grace doesn't often feel very full of grace in itself as a term and we have joked before that some of those churches that really really focus on a certain type of grace actually don't necessarily feel like the ones that are full of love and grace and there's an irony there um uh, so it just i think it's great that actually great we, we love to nail down words and i think it's great that grace actually means so many more so much more than just one thing and the thing I take away from it today is that the ability to participate in it and that that's good and that actually that's not supposed to be some burden, but it's actually a kind of freedom that helps me and helps others and that involves action, but it's not some sort of, we have to do it. It's something that naturally comes from the fact that, it, that yeah, it's, it's, it's so much bigger. As I think that's profound teacher I think the outworking of grace in our lives is a fruit of the work of God in our lives the spirit of God revealing things to us and it's never a should or a must or ought to because that dynamic is bondage the idea of just this is something that I want to do or give myself to because of what God is doing or has done in my life it, it is a freeing and liberating thing and and from that point of view, it doesn't cost in the same way that feeling that you ought to or should or must has a cost attached to it. But it's just, yeah, it's something that you, that, that you do or give yourself to. Uh, and I, I really like the, the distinction between just rather than just being a recipient of grace, but being a participant in grace and being a participant in because in, that, that, that to me is an exciting thing, a freeing thing. And that's about God's kingdom and being an expression of God's kingdom. And who knows where that would take us. So that, to me, is a very hopeful, full of life thing. So I'm talking too much. Others jump in. I was thinking about grace in terms of what we do as a church. So, for example, when I came to the church, it was clear to me we did a lot of work with homeless people. And people would say, oh, we do this, we do that. And it struck me that sometimes, something like that, we do it because we feel guilty. And, and that isn't good. We shouldn't be doing things because we feel guilty. We shouldn't be doing things because we feel guilty that we're not homeless or, or we, we, you know, we, we do have enough food to put on our table. But also we shouldn't be doing things because they make us feel good. Um, sometimes when you do something for people, it can make you feel good. And, and I think, you know, is this making me feel good? Is that the ending of itself? And I think when, when love is at the bottom of it, and when we're actually genuinely putting other people first, then that will shape what we do and how we do it. And as we think about our vision and how we help people, I hope we're thinking about where other people are, where the people, who are the people that need our help and how can we do it? Not how can I feel good by helping them? How can we persuade everyone to help people and make them feel guilty enough to do it? And, and it's really, making me think about how, how it is we can engage with people. Can I just say one other thing following on from Nigel, sorry, now I'm jumping in there again. Um, I also think though that we 
I absolutely agree, Nigel, but I think we then have to be careful not to put so much of a burden on ourselves that actually it's bad that I feel good for doing this for somebody because actually it's not bad that I feel good. It, it, it's great that, I, that, that, that it's something that actually benefits both, both me and that person. And I, what, what I'm slightly nervous about is that I think we can just hurt ourselves with the concept of grace when, when that wasn't in, every, in any way the intention. And I think that if you're somebody who's feeling that you actually at the moment don't have a lot of good stuff going on, you don't feel you've been given a lot, life does feel really unfair. The worst thing in the world to do is burden yourself with the concept that, um, that, that actually you should feel better and you should feel grateful for the little you had and you have to pass that on. I think that the whole concept of grace, that's a distortion of it. And that actually some people, I mean, it's interesting in the passage, it says that they gave according to their means and beyond their means, but that's because they wanted to give beyond their means um, and that they were begging to do more. That's different to, you know, feeling guilt and whatever about giving something you haven't got. And what's the saying? You can't give from an empty bowl or whatever. The reality is it's once again, yeah, not not using it as guilt. Guilt and grace are different. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just makes me think of like when we talk of when people talk about penal substitution, I just think of like people I know who have said, oh yes, in Sunday school as a, as a child, I was told my naughtiness killed Jesus and that kind of thing. And yeah, <laughs> it's not where you want to end up. But um, yeah, sorry. I'm probably going to draw this to a close in a minute. I'm just going to say a couple of things. Um, and we might just read a couple from, from the chat. So. Um, Frank has mentioned the, the book by Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace, which I remember reading about 20 years ago. It was really good. And Solomon has, has talked about the um, finding out that life doesn't end up being, um, isn't, we, we learn later that life isn't itself fair, but only by the grace of God that we can channel through an unfair world. Um, one of the things that get, went through my mind as we were listening to Simon uh, speak is, sort of one of those expressions that you know we sometimes hear but the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and so when we all uh individually maybe just operate on our own and do it do it i don't know whatever it is that we we might do uh actually when we come together as a community and do that together it's actually more it's it, it, it's somehow multiplied and we've got it got in there as well so i, I liked also that as i mentioned it's a communal thing um and it's a relational thing and i think so we have us and community and relational and God as well. And um, you know, then that comes to a sort of grace and I just, yeah. Go on, Susan. Sorry, I just, I, I do just want to mention something about the money aspect. And I don't really have anything to add. I just want to say it completely honestly, like this is something I'm bad at because I, I don't know. I just, in case anyone else is feeling that way i hope someone else is feeling that way so it's not just me but like i mean i am bad at regular giving and i know that and um and like well the like the regular stuff is fine like um 
you know, I can set aside a certain proportion of my weekly budget to give to stuff. But then, you know, if I happen to get a lump sum of money, I'm very bad at going, hey, what can I use this just like in a good way? I go, oh, this is something I've wanted for a while and now I can have it. Yay, let's go buy it. Um, and like, I don't know. I'm bad at this. I just didn't want us to not have talked about it in the panel discussion. Mm. But I don't have anything to add. All I can say is very, it's very hard. Honest. Very honest. It's good. It's good stuff. Um, we'll perhaps begin to wrap up the discussion from our panelists at this point. Thank you all for contributing. Uh, thank you, Simon, again for the sermonette and for uh, stimulating us in our, our, in our thoughts and our discussions and our responses. Let's all pray. Lord God, we come before you now. We who are many, we who are scattered around London, around the country and around the world, we come to you who are one, to our great unchanging God who never changes even while all around us changes. The one who is faithful, when all around us fails. The one who is love and kindness, while all around us is strife. We love you, we worship you, we acknowledge you to be our great God. We pray for our world. We pray for the people of Beirut, for those who've been injured, for those who've been bereaved. Comfort those who mourn. Heal those who are injured. Help those who are treating them and seeking to help. We pray for peace and stability for the country of Lebanon. We pray for those who've been affected by the pandemic. For those who mourn loved ones. For those who are ill. For those who are afraid and who fear the future. For those who face uncertainty. For those who have lost their jobs. We thank you for the doctors and nurses and medical staff that care for them. We thank you for those who keep things running, who put food on the shelves of the shops who keep our society safe. We thank you for those who are working towards a cure. We pray that a vaccine might be found soon. We pray for just solutions, for a rev revised global community. We pray that those in power might see new opportunities to find a better way of doing things. Give them the wisdom and the courage they need to bring us into being. We pray for the church. Help us to see how we can bear witness to you, bear witness to your love, to be a beacon of light in this city, in these times where we cannot meet together and when we open our doors once again and can meet together. We pray for ourselves, 
Help us to trust you. Help us to know and feel every day your presence with us. To know your comfort in our grief. Your strength in our weakness. To know and celebrate the love of Christ every day. Be thou our vision, we pray. Amen.